and enjoyed that time and uh, happy to be here again. We're going to just cover some real basic things this weekend, which are kind of like meat and potatoes. You ever heard that expression? <laughs> or blocking and tackling, <laughs> real basic stuff. But, you know, uh, we in Oklahoma City, we uh, have our Lord's Table in the evening, and so we have uh, a little more time in the morning, so we have what we call a new beginning fellowship. Now, we don't say new beginners fellowship. We call it a new beginning fellowship because all of us need new beginnings. Uh, You know, even the way nature operates, you know, you have seasons. And Brother Lee has written a couple of great books about this. It's called The Law of Revival. If you haven't ever read it, you might want to read that. And then there's uh, God's need and God's goal. And he talks about how we go through seasons. You know, there's a winter you guys don't have much of a winter down here. <laughs> I'm from Baton Rouge, so I know about no winters. But now I live in Oklahoma, so I also know about winters. And uh, we have a good winter up there, and everything looks dead. <clears throat> and then you have a spring and this new life. And then you have a summer, and then you have a fall, and the old life begins to die in the fall. So the Lord brings us through seasons in our Christian life. And uh, don't be surprised about that. There we pass through things. Seasons. Even we have, you know, winter. I was in Kansas and uh, uh, Missouri and uh, Nebraska last weekend, and I was talking to the brothers in Kansas. Of course, you know, Kansas is famous for wheat. Kansas State University, they have the Institute of Baking, and it's an international institute, and people come there from all over the world to learn different techniques of using wheat, because, of course, Kansas is the leading wheat state. And they were telling me that uh, they have their uh, winter wheat. They have different kinds of wheat. But winter wheat is one that they plant, I think, right at the beginning of winter or maybe the end of the fall. And uh, it just has a little growth, and then it looks dormant during the whole winter. But actually, the roots are growing. You just can't see the, the growth. So we, we pass through things, and uh, there are four seasons. You know, you can learn a lot just by studying nature and uh, human anatomy, all kind of things. Because God, you know, we're created in the image of God, for one thing. So you can learn a lot just by considering humanity to know a little bit about God because we're in his image. And, you know, in the book of Colossians, it tells us that, uh, that Christ was the instrument through which creation came forth. And in that, Brother Nee talks a little bit about this, and he says that because of this, all creation bears some of the characteristics of Christ in different ways. You can learn a lot about God and and his operations just by studying a little bit about nature. Brother Lee actually recommends this in one of his, I think, The Experience of Life, on knowing the will of God to study anatomy and things like this. You learn, you're enlarged. But just by the seasons, you can understand human life and the Christian life. We have seasons. And we have there's a night and there's a day. Every 24 hours we have a night. And every year we have a winter. Not much down here, but anyway, we have a winter. And uh, that looks like things are dead. The leaves are gone. In Oklahoma, all the leaves are gone except on the evergreens. And uh, looks like things die, but they don't die. There's a, that's the time the roots are growing. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> this is a, a very basic fellowship we'll have, and uh, so our 
on Lord's Day, I'm sorry, I didn't finish my story. On Lord's Day mornings, we have the table in the evening, so we have what we call a new beginning fellowship. And it's just covering things that, which do help new beginners, but not only new beginners, we all need new beginnings. We all need fresh starts. Uh, and we have a fresh start every day, you know. And I remember one time I was talking to Benson, and uh, he was sharing with some brothers, and he said, you know, if you have a really bad day, then just go to bed. Because in the next, the next morning, you're going to have a fresh start. You can have a fresh start. And that is so true. Sometimes days are just so bad, you just want them to end. And just go to bed and get up that next morning early and spend time with the Lord. And you have Because his mercies are new every day. Every morning. Every morning they're new. And, uh, yeah, every morning. So this is real basic stuff. But anyway, and, you know, of course, those of us involved in the college work, we share this regularly. These, not exactly. This message, these messages have been kind of tweaked a little bit. But we share this with our college kids. <clears throat> and Brother Don Luprak is the first one who developed this kind of series. So we're just kind of going through some of this, but we'll not share exactly in the same way and not maybe the same emphasis. And we put the messages together so that we can just basically map our own time because we have three sessions, two today and one tomorrow. So I don't know exactly where we'll end today and where we'll start tomorrow, or the second session today, but we don't need to worry. We'll finish, and uh, we'll spend less time on some of these items, quite a bit less, and a little bit more time on other things because this is a little different audience, mainly, of course, saints in the church with, with some new ones, but certainly not a college group. Uh, the first thing that we get into is uh, very basic but it's important and that is uh, well the first thing is just the fact that we need to have a revelation in our Christian life you know brother Nee said there are two main works of the Holy Spirit and one is revelation and the other is discipline and if without seeing things in the Christian life you don't make progress you can know kind of know a little bit in the knowledge realm, but seeing is much more. When you see, and even in human life, you can know something, you have book knowledge, but when you see that thing, you, it, it's, a different, it's a different kind of uh, feeling. You know, this is why, um, like, you know, I, I think in these terms, because I studied history, uh, like sometimes the political leaders, they go on these trips to different parts of the world to see things, like seeing what's going on in Afghanistan, seeing what's going on in Iraq. And, you know, we joke about that as a junkies, but there's a reason for that, because when you see something, you, you understand it a little bit better. You can hear about something, but you go there, and you get a different view, a little bit, you know, you see things. Even, consider, in John chapter 3, the Lord says, unless uh, you're born anew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you know, that used to bother me. Because I would think, well, I don't want to see the kingdom of God. I want to get into the kingdom of God. But he says in verse 3, if you, if you, unless you're born anew, you can't see. And then in verse 5, he talks about entering into it. But seeing is mentioned before entering into. Because in the Christian realm, in the realm of God, seeing is first. What you see, you enter into. So we always need to be seeing things. And this is why we read the Bible, we read the ministry, we come to meetings, we fellowship, because we have eyes in our heart, called the eyes of our heart. And we don't see things outwardly that much. I don't believe all that when I hear it, you know. 
because I've never seen anything outwardly, but I have seen things inwardly. The night I was saved, the eyes of my heart were enlightened. I would say I saw Christ, but I didn't see him physically, but I saw something in my heart that I'd never seen before. And based on that seeing you enter into, and this is how we make progress in our Christian life, we see things, we continue to see things. As we read the Bible, we fellowship, we study, we read ministry, things like this. We see more, and this causes us to continue to make progress. You think about Abraham, the father of faith. He was an idol worshiper, living in the land of idol worshipers, and the God of glory appeared to him. And uh, so when the God of glory appeared to him, that was his seeing. And, of course, we don't know exactly what that was like. I don't know. I mean, how much was physical, how much was psychological. But something happened, and he saw this God of glory. And he was attracted to this God of glory. And I think a number of us can identify with this. We, when we heard the gospel or read a gospel tract or heard a preacher or somebody shared with us, Maybe we didn't have experience quite like Abraham, but we had some kind of seeing that attracted us and that we were infused with this. You know, Brother Lee talks about faith in a marvelous way. And uh, he says, he uses an illustration that, you know, the salesmen who want to show you their product because when you see their product, you begin to be a little bit interested and attracted to their product. Like jewelry, you know. Uh, you see it, I'm not particularly attracted to jewelry, but I think maybe some in this room might be. But anyway, if you see a diamond ring, uh, you, maybe you weren't even thinking about diamonds, but then when you see it, and it, you see the sparkle, you see the cut, you see the all kind of stuff, and gold and things like this, that infuses you with an element of appreciation. You begin to appreciate that and you, have a, 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 you, a, you uh, evaluate that in such a way that you want it. A proper gospel preacher uh, presents Christ, and we can all be a, a gospel preacher in this way, we present Christ in a way that people begin to see a little bit more of Christ. Because we'll see in these verses that Paul in wrote the book of Philippians from jail and he said that his aspiration in that Roman jail was that he would magnify Christ. And you have to analyze that. What does it mean to magnify Christ? Well, what it means is that in the view of people in this world, Christ is very small and very much insignificant and very much even nothing in the view of a lot of people. And they may think there was, a, there was a figure historically, but they don't really understand why people worship him or why they're so interested in him. But if a person like Paul or like us lives Christ and enjoys Christ, and that means experiences Christ in a real and genuine way, not uh, just in their living, this becomes uh, a kind of a magnification of Christ then they see Christ not directly, but they see him through you as a mirror. And Paul, you know, in 2 Corinthians, uses a lot of uh, kind of allegories and figures talking about uh, how we uh, 
magnify Christ. He says that we scatter incense of Christ, that we're mirrors reflecting Christ, that we're letters of Christ. And so people can read a little bit of Christ in you. They can see a little bit of Christ in you. They can smell a little bit of Christ in you. If you're a person that experiences and enjoys Christ. And so this is magnification of Christ. And this uh, attracts people to Christ. And I think back on my experience of getting saved. And I was not saved until I was a junior at the very end of my junior year at LSU. And I was raised in a good family of good and decent people. But we were not Christians. We were not Christians at all. And there was very little pretense of being Christian. So I, was, I knew nothing about the Bible. I knew nothing. I didn't understand what are the Gospels versus the Epistles. I didn't even know that. And uh, my view of Christ was he was nearly nothing. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't against him, but I just, he just wasn't anything to me. He was a historical figure which I didn't really believe he was well, who he said he was. And I wasn't even sure what he said because I'd never read the Bible. I just knew some people appreciated him. Uh, but through some Christians that I knew at LSU, and they were students. They weren't pastors. They weren't Christian workers because I was very skeptical of Christian workers. Didn't ever go to any kind of crusades or pe- meetings like this. I wouldn't you know, darken the door. But I had friends. And through particularly one friend, a, a guy, and maybe there's a girl there too, a little bit, I, uh, I began to see a little bit of Christ. And it wasn't that they were acting religious, because I certainly wasn't attracted to religion of any sort. But there was some, something real of Christ, something of his, I don't know, peace, wisdom, love, joy. And it wasn't any performance, because performances did not attract me at all. They would move me the other direction. It was real. It had to be something real. It was a, a smell, like Paul says in Second Corinthians. There was this aroma, and there was a little reflecting, and there was a little magnification, and there were some letters. You know, D.L. Moody, uh, the great evangelist of the 19th century, said, out of 100 people, only five will read the Bible. The other 95 will read the Christian. You are their Bible. <laughs> and uh, they won't bother to open the, open the Bible. And then another guy, he said, you know, it's funny. People give the Bible. They buy the Bible. They esteem the Bible. They put the Bible on the shelf. But they don't read the Bible. So, and for a lot of people, Paul is really right. We are the letters of Christ. And so this is part of the revelation. People can see Christ a little bit in us. Anyway, by our seeing, back to this point, uh, this moves us forward in our Christian life also. So the first verse there is, uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And of course, what that means is that we are emptied and willing to, and able to receive something new. Uh, we need to constantly be empty. Don't let yourself just get full of old stuff. It was good maybe yesterday. It was good last year, but we need to, to, to be emptied out. The reason the Lord went to young people in Galilee and not old scholars is because old people, and I'm one now, 
uh, they tend to have lots of experiences and opinions and knowledge and uh, everything. So it's not so easy for them to get some, to take something new. But hopefully we would be young in our heart and be poor in our spirit. And then the next verse says, the eyes of your heart. Of course, again, I've mentioned this already. Uh, I don't trust any of these people that see things outwardly. Now, I don't say that doesn't happen sometimes, maybe. Maybe it does. I don't know. I can't, I can't be that definitive. But I generally have a big question mark. But I do know people see something in the eyes of their heart. And that's what Paul mainly is talking about. I mean, I think Paul saw something. And I think, from what I understand, Brother Neve may have seen something. I don't know. But uh, and I'm sure there are people that do see something. But a lot of that I don't uh, put a big trust on. But I do trust the eyes of our heart. And uh, then when the next verse, whenever the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump on now. Now, what, we do, what do we need to see? Well, firstly, we're going to just begin a little brief review of two main things we need to see all the time and see more. And that is the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And this, these two matters, the person of Christ and the work of Christ, uh, for many years after the church began in the you know, first century, uh, they occupied a lot of time among Christian leaders we call church fathers. Uh, there was a lot of debate about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. What? Who really was he? And this goes on today. You know, Mormons have a different view of Christ. A different view of who he was. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different view of who he was. Humanists, you know, certain people have a view, like even the Communist Party back in the early days of the Soviet Union. They even published for a while their own Bible, their own New Testament. And they did what Thomas Jefferson did. You know what Thomas Jefferson did. He cut out the parts he didn't like especially the parts about Christ doing miracles and being divine and being resurrected. So he cut out all those things. The communists did the same thing. And uh, they stressed that he was an exemplary man because he was kind to the poor, he was selfless, he was humble, he was pure, and all this stuff. Of course, that, you know, that Bible wasn't that popular, I'm sure. But... Uh, and that ended. But anyway, there are people that view Christ, Jesus, in this way. He was the best man who ever lived. But he wasn't God. And there's some people that say he was God, but he only looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. And there's some people who say, well, he was part God and part man. Some people say he was a man who became God. Some people say he... Uh, different views of Christ. But we need to see, just briefly... Uh, who was this person that we have faith in, according to the Bible? And uh, then what did he do? Now, what did he do? Again, there's debate on that. Some people would say, well, you know, he taught how to live. He taught virtues. But, and he gave his life as a martyr for his teachings. Uh, you know, we believe, as real Christians, he died a redemptive death. And, uh, of course, he did teach, and he did 
define God, explain God, but he died a redemptive death. So again, this is the element of work. So concerning the person of Christ and concerning the work of Christ, we need to be clear who is this man and what did he do. So just real quickly, uh, this man was the complete God. Okay, we have verses here in Hebrews. It says, your th- but of the Son, your throne, O God. So speaking of the Son, he is called God. And then you have uh, some verses I didn't put here, but they're in parenthesis, which are very good for you to have as a reference. If you ever get into a debate, well, I'm not promoting debates, but anyway, just for you to know, uh, these are good verses here. Romans 9, 5, the good verse, it says that he is God, this Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. He is God over all, blessed forever. Very good verse. And many Christians who are Orthodox Christians use this verse like we do. And then you have John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh. So it's very clear, God became flesh. And then you have uh, John 20, 28 and 29. This is after the Lord resurrected and Thomas was not at one of the meetings and he was doubting, you know. We have a term, we have a term in English, doubting Thomas. You know what a doubting Thomas is. He just doesn't believe. So this came from Thomas who wasn't there and he doubted that the resurrected Christ had appeared, and he said, I won't believe unless I see his hands and maybe put my hand in his side or something like that. (laughs) And so then the Lord comes the next day, I think, and walks into the room. Of course, you know, doesn't open the door, just kind of comes in. And uh, Thomas was there, and then the Lord says to Thomas, come here, look at my hands, put your hand in my side. And then Thomas I guess, I I can't remember if he says he falls to his knees or not, but he says, my Lord and my God. Now, this is a good verse, because if Jesus Christ really were not God, you know, to the Jews, to say that a man is God is a blasphemy. Blasphemy. You know, Jesus, part of the reason he was crucified, he was making himself equal with God. That blasphemy. So this would have been a very good time for Jesus to correct this erroneous declaration by Thomas. He could have said, wait, Thomas, just don't say Lord and God. Say Lord and Son of God or Lord and something else. But he said, blessed are you and blessed are those who have believed without seeing. So he affirmed that declaration, my Lord and my God. So this is our faith and this is a big point of our faith. Let me tell you. There are definitely heresies out there that say that Jesus was not God. He was Son of God, but that's a little less. Not really equal with the Father. Not really the, the, uh, the triune God was incarnated. They have, you know, these are, we don't we reject these. Then you have this great story in Mark chapter 2. We just put a few verses here. But this is a very good story, also affirming the deity of Christ and that he is God. And the story is that there's a guy who's, paralyzed and Jesus is in a house there somewhere around Galilee maybe Capernaum and uh, but the house is so crowded they can't get the guy in to see Jesus and he has these friends that are good friends and they want to bring Jesus in to they want to bring their friend in to be healed so they had faith 
but they couldn't get him to the door, so they, you know, the roofs kind of like just maybe thatch with mud and, and things like that. So they dug through the roof, and they lowered their friend into this house. And uh, Jesus was wow, amazed at such faith. And so uh, there are a couple of verses I don't have there. Let me just, I want to read you this section. So Jesus was very impressed with this. And uh, they lowered this paralytic, and he was on a mat. And then Jesus, seeing their faith there, meaning, I guess, the paralytic, but also the friends, because they were really going to bat for their friend to lower him to the roof, because they believed Jesus had the power to heal him. So Jesus was impressed with their faith, and he says to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. Now, they didn't really bring their friend there to be forgiven of his sins. They brought him there to be healed. He could walk. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Maybe his paralyzed was related to his sin. I don't know. But that's what he said. Then the next verse, some of the scribes were there, and it says they were reasoning in their heart. They didn't speak it. They're reasoning in their heart. And then verse 7 says, what are they reasoning? They're reasoning this. Why is this man, that's Jesus, speaking in this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except one? God. So the Jews knew only God has the authority to forgive sins. And now this man has been lowered, and Jesus, this man, who they considered an imposter, is saying your sins are forgiven. And so they don't even speak this, but in their heart they're reasoning this. Okay? Then you have the next verse, 8. And Jesus, knowing fully in his spirit that they were reasoning in this way, within themselves, they hadn't spoken it, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? So, let me tell you something. This right here is a little indication he was God, because how do you know uh, the reasonings of a person's heart? Unless you are God. <laughs> so he's, he's giving them a hint right now. And then he goes a little further. He says in verse 9, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your mat, and walk? Now think about that. What is easier? Okay. Listen, I can walk around... San Antonio, the river walk, and I can walk up to people and say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. People, what are they going to think? Who is this guy? I don't think he has authority to be forgiving sins. Right? Okay, so Jesus said, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat and walk. Well, in one sense, my response would be it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Then he continues. You, okay. Uh, but, sorry, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. He said to the paralytic, Rise, Take up your mat and go to your house. So the man rose up and walked and took up his mat and left. Now, the point is, if he is, it's harder to get the guy to stand up and walk, 
a real miracle than just to go around saying your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Who knows about that? But to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And the man walked. So, again, this is a strong affirmation. The Jews are the ones who said, who can forgive sins? Only God. And this was God. And he forgave sins. And just to be, show them to be absolutely clear that he had that authority, he had the man rise and take up his mat and walk. You know, when the Lord died on the cross for our sins, uh, the confirmation that he was dying for our sins and that that sacrifice was accepted was when the Father rose him from the dead, raised him from the dead. That indicated the Father accepted that sacrifice, and that was a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He was resurrected. All of his work, all of his living, all of his teaching, everything he did, everything he said was validated by his resurrection from the dead. The Father stamped his approval on his life, his death, by his resurrection. So anyway, these are just good. He's a complete God. <clears throat> and uh, another good verse, for some reason I didn't have it there, and that is Colossians 2.9, which says, All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Now this is a very, very good verse on this matter. So all the fullness of God was dwelling in Christ bodily. When they were worshiping, when Jesus was on earth, and they were opposing him, and at the same time, some were worshiping in the temple. It was just complete vanity because they were opposing God on earth and worshiping him in the temple. He was visiting them and they were opposing him because all of the fullness of the Godhead was dwelling in that man bodily. So this is the normal Christian faith. Okay, then just quickly, uh, of course, he was a mingling of God and man. Oh, I'm sorry, he's a perfect man. Uh, no sin. I don't think I need to spend much time here. It was a mingling of God and man. And this word mingled, I think we're here pretty much all familiar with this word. But this is a very good word. Some people oppose this word. But this is a very good word because we have a type in Leviticus 2, 4. And that is the mingling of oil with fine flour for the meal offering. And this is a type or a figure of Christ. Fine flour, perfect humanity. Oil, divinity. Mingled together to form a loaf. This is the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Mingled. The word mingle is a very good word. Some people have tried to oppose this word. Saying mingling is to confuse the divine nature with the human nature. Or that the divine nature absorbs the human nature in one exist anymore. No, because if you look at the dictionary, the third, Webster's Third International, the big, big one, of course, nobody even has these anymore, because we all have, a, you know, dictionaries here, but uh, it's mingling is a combination of two or more elements, such that in the combination, the properties remain distinct in their characteristics. So humanity is not absorbed and nullified. Neither is divinity altered. No, God is, God is God, man is man, but they are blended together, they're mingled together, and this is a very, very good word. And it's a perfect word, as a matter of fact. <coughs> Biblical word. Okay, um, 
let's just move on here. Uh, he, uh, I don't want to cover the verses in John 4, but he's the image of God. Christ was the image of God. You know, before Jesus Christ came, of course, you know, John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. That word is logos. And this word in Greek, logos, means a kind of a definition. It means, it means word, but word in the sense of a defining, an explaining, a declaring, uh, a making known. So Jesus is the logos. He is the definition of God. He is the explanation of God. Now, one way to understand this, and then it says, and this word became flesh. So, in the Old Testament, God was dwelling in unapproachable light. And uh, even the children of Israel in Exodus 19, you know, he came on Mount Sinai, but still there was thundering and there was lightning and they were afraid and God was so far from them and so awesome. Uh, And then we have the prophets that came. And we have the, uh, the writings of the Old Testament books, Moses' books, and then the prophets, uh, and Psalms, and things like this. And these are, in a sense, letters written by God, because they were inspired of God, even though written by man. They're letters. You could say they're love letters. Or you could say they're like a pen pal. I don't know how many people have pen pals anymore because now you have FaceTime and Facebook and email. But in the old days, right, Enoch, you remember pen pals? George, you remember pen pals? People had, you remember pen pals? Like you have a a guy that lives in uh, France and you'd write letters to France. And then this would be a big thing, you know? You'd write back and forth and you get to know a person as a pen pal. You'd never met this person. You might send a picture. But we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have these kind of things like we have today. Then maybe one day you actually meet your pen pal. And of course you had different ideas about this person. But when you really meet them, it's also going to be a little surprising probably. uh, Because they're not exactly like they may have presented themselves. And uh, sometimes there are online romances. This too. I, one time I was flying back from Austin to Oklahoma City and I was sitting next to a lady and uh, we were talking and she, I, was talk, I said, where are you going or something? She said, I'm going to Boston. And I said, oh, that's great. What are you doing in Boston? And she was a little embarrassed, I could tell. And then she said, well, I'm going to meet. Uh, I'm engaged. and I'm going to meet this man I'm engaged to. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, wow. That's interesting. Uh, so you guys got to know each other over the internet, huh? She said, yeah. And you're engaged? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, kind of a ten- it's a kind of a tentative engagement. And this is the first time you're going to meet? Yeah, this is the first time you're going to meet. So she was kind of a little bit embarrassed about it. And so anyway, I was talking to her. And uh, I just was, you know, a little feeling a little anxious on her behalf. <laughs> and so... Uh, <laughs> I said, listen, I was fixing to get off the plane. I said, listen, let me give you something. I gave her a gospel track. I said, now what I want you to do when you meet this guy is just give him this gospel track and say, read this, the first thing. And I thought, you know, maybe this will, uh, you know, if he's a bad person, I'll shoo him away or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) But you never know what you're going to get. Even the, the letters and the pen pal, you know. So 
the children of Israel, they had been getting letters from God in the writings and the, the visits of the prophets and the Psalms and all kind of things. Moses, it's all learning about God, but they'd never met him. And then one day he comes. He comes to live among them. And he has to come in a way that's not going to scare them because they, he dwell in unapproachable light. And in and, and, and Exodus, he was on the mountain with thunder and lightning. So their view of God was very frightening. But he came in the lowest of ways. He came incarnated, not as a king. Well, he was a king, but he, didn't, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He was born to a very lowly family. And he was raised in a lowly city. And he had a lowly job. And so he was very approachable. And people, they could approach him. And this was God explaining himself, declaring himself, defining himself. Of course, you didn't see much of that too much until he's 30 years old. But then he goes out and begins to speak. And he begins to heal, and he begins to teach, and he begins to be with the people. And then God is really being defined, <coughs> explained, expressed. He is really the Logos. He is the image of the invisible God. Amen. This is a part of his function. This is what he did. He defined God. He explained God. He expressed God. We saw how wonderful God was, how lovely he was, how kind, how merciful. You know, the Lord, Jesus, never really was tough on sinners. He was tough on one class of people, and that was religious hypocrites. That's really the only ones he was really tough on. He wasn't tough on sinners. He was very forgiving, very kind, very sympathetic. But toward that class, the religious hypocrites, he was pretty tough. But this was, he is the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews 1 says, who being the effulgence of his glory, that means the glory of God, the impress of his substance. So the effulgence of God's glory, the effulgence means the rays. Like the sun has the effulgence, the shining out, and the rays reach us with light and with heat. So Christ is the reaching of God. He is the effulgence of God. And he's the impress of the substance of God. And John 1.18 says he declared God. And there's a verse I should have put on here, and it's Luke 1.78. And that in Luke 1.78, it speaks about Christ coming as the rising sun who will visit us. So when Christ came, in a sense, the sun rose. And everything was brought into the light. You know, there's one Christian writer uh, I read when I was a new believer. And he said something I like. And he said, I believe... That Christ, is, that Christ is God, something like that, who rose from the dead. Just like I believe the sun is risen every day. And then he said, why do I believe the sun is risen every day? Because, not only because I see the sun risen every day, but because I see everything in the light of the sun. And he says, I see as a Christian everything in the light of Christ. He is the effulgence of God's glory. He is the light reaching us. And when you become a Christian, you can identify some with this. And that is, you see things differently. Because you are brought out of darkness into a realm of light. 
And, you know, if this room were dark and it was night, we could be stumbling around here. We wouldn't know who's here. We wouldn't see who's here. We wouldn't know these chairs are green. We wouldn't know anything. But when the light comes on, you not only see the light, you see everything in the light. And this guy <laughs> wrote this in this book, and I never forgot that. I see everything in this, the light of this risen sun, this Christ. He is the, the light of God reaching us. It's a good, uh, a good thought. So anyway, he's the image of God. He expressed God. He's the wisdom of God. Uh, and you have this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became wisdom to us from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The main thing I would say about this is this. Christ is the wisdom of God. This universe, this earth, and mankind is in a big mess. And it's, this mess has affected man, it's affected animals, it's affected the environment, it's affected everything. The whole universe has been damaged by the fall. By the satanic rebellion and by man following that rebellion to fall. As the head of the created universe. The whole universe is in disarray. Death is working. Uh, there's a, even a law in thermodynamics, the law of entropy, in which tends everything tends toward decay and dissolution. The whole universe, and that's why Romans chapter 8 is one of the most focal and deepest uh, chapters in the Bible. Because in Romans 8, it says things like this. In verse 19, for the anxious watching of the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. So creation, all the universe, actually, we don't know. But they, creation is waiting for the maturity of the sons of God, the revelation of the sons of God. Then verse 20, for, cre for the creation was made subject to vanity. And the whole creation has been damaged by the fall, by satanic rebellion and the fall of man. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the, verse 21, the creation itself will also be freed from the slavery of corruption. So creation and even animals, you know, every living thing dies. Trees die, everything dies. And creation tends toward decay and just, you know, falling apart. The whole creation is damaged. And, uh, but he says, that, but that the creation would also be freed from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together and travails in pain until now. So creation is groaning. Now I heard, I don't, I can't, absolutely verify this but I heard in one of these deep missions into space they recorded they had a recorder of some kind and they picked up this kind of a sound and they didn't really know what it was they could only describe it as a kind of a groaning <laughs> just some kind of a sound I don't know you know maybe that's too much but anyway here it says the whole creation is groaning <clears throat> Not only so, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we ourselves groan 
in ourselves awaiting sonship, the redemption of our body. So that's full growth. That's the revelation of the sons of God. So our God's purpose is focused very much on man, on God's economy, which is to dispense himself into us for us to receive a new life, for this new life to grow in us, to make home in our heart, to renew us, to transform us, to sanctify us, eventually to conform us and to glorify us. The whole creation is focused on man and focused on the believers and focused on the church and focused on God's economy and God's eternal purpose. And this has to be worked out for this problem in the whole creation. So in this sense, Christ is the wisdom of God. Now, for there to, for you to understand that a person like Victor, you may not even know how smart Victor is. Until there's a big problem. And then he just has a solution to this problem. And then you say, wow. I never knew how smart you were. You know, some people, like, they can fix things. They can fix computers. They can fix big computers. And uh, they just come in there. They start looking at it. And they know what to do. They know what do this and do that, you know, and there's even a joke about a guy who had this giant computer uh, and it wasn't working, or giant machine, it wasn't working, and so the, the company is shut down, and then uh, they hire in this expert to come. They've been trying to fix this machine because it's the heart of their business, and then they, this expert comes, and he's looking at this and opening this, walking around, and listening, and Eventually, he picks up a hammer and walks over to this one particular spot. Bam, bam, bam. And the whole machine starts running. And then he says, okay, here's your bill. Like, you know, $10,000 or something like that. <laughs> so the guy says, what? $10,000? All you did was hit on the side with a hammer. He said, yeah, but you have to know where to hit. <laughs> <laughs> So Christ is the wisdom of God. He can, he, his wisdom is manifested Amen. in so many ways. And in the verse, it's really pointing to uh, his wisdom with us because it says righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These are very much a part of our experience of salvation. Our spirit, Paul says, is righteous because of life. Life comes into our spirit. Our spirit is right, made righteous. That's for our past. We're in the process of sanctification. You could say transformation or sanctification. That's the addition of the holy element into our soul, into our mind, emotion, and will. And that's for the present. And one day, our body will be redeemed. This life will get into our body. So life comes into our spirit. Life is saturating our soul, and one day life will get into our body, and that is for the future. So the wisdom of God is for our past, for our present, and for our future. And it's for the, all three parts of man, spirit, soul, and body. And the Lord really is the wisdom of God Amen. to solve the problem. Okay, then the process of Christ. Well, real quickly, of course, we know he was incarnated. And I pretty much said something about that already. This is, and this matter of incarnation, you have to see it from this angle a little bit. God wanted to have a relationship with man. But God was un dwelling in unapproachable light. God was 
quite, in a sense, threatening to man. But God wanted to be approachable. And so God was incarnated in a very lowly way. Now, watch when he tells a story. He goes to, to a mountain one time in China and just to be away or, to, you know, whatever, study or something. And uh, he noticed it was winter and he noticed there were some birds that were cold and they didn't have much food and they were outside the window. And he had a heart to help these birds. And so he went out to try and give them some food and they all, of course, flew away. And then he had the thought, if I could just become a bird, then they wouldn't be afraid of me. And this is very much like God. God became a man to be with us. And, uh, you know, of course, Chris lived in Russia, but, uh, you know, the uh, Tsar Peter the Great, uh, he wanted to learn how to build ships and he wanted to learn to to do things more the Western way. So at the very beginning of the 18th century, he went, he disguised himself as just a common person. And he went to Holland. And he learned to build ships. And he learned things about the Western culture. Because, you know, the, the Russians were very Eastern. And they had their, their ways of life. But he knew that the Russia should be more Western. And he moved the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And uh, anyway, but he dis basically disguised himself because he knew if I go as a czar, nobody's going to really, I'm not going to really learn anything. They're all going to be treating me special and not going to be telling me really the facts. But he just came as a sailor and he lived among the men and he was so impressed with Holland that, you know, the colors of the Russian flag are just the same colors as the Dutch flag. The Dutch flag is red, white, and blue and their stripes are like, this way, this way, this way. And the Russian flag is white, red, and blue, I think. This way, this way, this way. Yeah. So they, he modeled their flag after the Dutch flag because he was so impressed with the Dutch ingenuity and how they built ships. And this is him disguising himself so he could mingle with the people, so he could blend with the people. So when Christ was incarnated, he wanted to be approachable. He wanted to define God, explain God, and express God and be with man. And so he lived among us in his human living. And the main thing about his human living was uh, not that we would imitate outwardly. The imitation, Paul does say, Paul does say several places, several times, Paul says, imitate me. He does say, imitate me. Uh, but the whole matter of imitation is a little bit dicey. It's a little bit tricky. There is a place for imitation. In human learning, educators know that there is imitation. People imitate, and they learn through imitation. Even you can learn a language by just, you know, speaking dialogues and things like this. And we learn things by imitation. But there's also a limit to imitation. So uh, because the nature of the Christian life is inward, we have to be careful that it doesn't just become an imitation that we imitate to a degree and learn principles and patterns, but that we never move off of the center of the inner life of Christ within all of us. But anyway, the point being that the, the idea that we would just outwardly imitate Christ has been an idea that Christians have had for many, many years. And uh, like, you know, there's a book, The Imitation of Christ. 
and that is that we would try and model ourselves after the way Jesus lived. Now, this is a formula for failure. Let me assure you, you will fail, and you'll probably quit the Christian life, because this is Romans 7. If you imitate this life in that way, you will give up. You'll throw in the towel, you'll quit the Christian life, or maybe you'll become a very strange religious person. There are some that are this way too. This is why, why imitation is dicey. We can learn a little, some things outwardly and we can pattern ourselves somewhat, but mainly the outward things that we learn about the life of Christ define and explain to us the nature of the life that is within us. And in this way, it is very helpful to read the Gospels very much because you will begin to understand the life in you. Because this is the life in you. This Jesus is in you. And even in the epistles, we can get more definition and explanation of the nature of this life. But the Christian life is not mainly an outward imitation. There's an element of that, but it has, has to be a limited element. It is an inward life. And, but consider this. If you work a jigsaw puzzle of a thousand pieces, invariably on the cover of the box, they're going to have a picture of the finished product. And that is very helpful because it helps you understand where the red pieces go and where the yellow pieces go and where the green ones go. And that pattern, that picture, helps you understand what you're doing. And so we see the life of Christ, but if you imitate it outwardly, you're, you're, on, you're in Romans 7, and you're going to have lots of problems. But if you pay attention to the inner life and build up the inner life and learn to live and walk by the Spirit, the, what you have learned of the pattern will be helpful. It will define to you experiences that you're having. Okay, so the main thing about his human living is not trying to imitate, you know, outwardly, but the principle of Christ's living, and that principle can be summarized very simply in that he denied himself and he lived by another life. He didn't do his own will, speak his own words, seek his own glory. He was baptized when he began his ministry, and he went to the cross, and his baptism means he was not going to live by the natural life. And this is a real most fundamental principle. And, uh, of course, John 6, 57 is a very big verse. Jesus said, I live because of the Father. Whoever eats me will live because of me. So he lived not by the human life, which was a good human life. He had no sin. But still, he lived by another life. And that is very fundamental to the Christian life. Because Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, and he also says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So the Christian life is not you imitating Christ. It's not you trying to live a Christian life. It's Christ living in you. Amen. Now, we have to nourish this life. There are lots of ways you can look at this. Nourish this life charge your battery all kind of different ways or stay hooked up D different ways you can different angles to this thing but um, 
just to begin to try and live the Christian life can actually also lead you to becoming a very religious person. And I'm not speaking positively when I use that term religion there. And or maybe also to become a very frustrated Christian. We need, well, Romans 8, 4 is a big verse. And that is uh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, not by, in those who walk according to the Spirit. Our focus should be walking according to the pneumatic Christ. This brother Lee, or brother Nee, or maybe both of them, said this is the Christian life because this is, then victory is automatic, spontaneous, and effortless. If there's effort, there's a problem. If it's not spontaneous, there's a problem. If it's not uh, automatic, there's a problem. This life lives. Our duty is to, as, G- as Jesus said in John 67, is to eat Christ. Is to stay connected, to stay plugged into him, to charge your battery, whatever angle you want to look at this. This is our job. This life will live itself in you. Amen. It will. It Amen. does. Amen. It lives. He lives. Okay. Then uh, that's his human living. So he set up a pattern. The pattern was he lived by the Father, and we need to live by him. Then, of course, he was crucified. And that was not just dying for his cause. People have died for their cause. A lot of people have died for their cause. You know, even non-Christians have died for their cause. And certainly Christians have died as martyrs. But his death was a redemptive death. It actually was a payment for the sins of mankind. Because in the Old Testament, it's full of the sacrifices, sin sacrifices, uh, to pay for, or to temporarily appease God so that he would pass over the sins for a while until the real payment came in and the real payment came in with Jesus. It's like a credit card. In the Old Testament, they kept using a credit card. They didn't really pay for their sins. They just kept a credit card. And the tab just kept growing, but God accepted the credit card, accepted the credit card, accepted the credit card, but still no real payment ever happened. One day Jesus comes and he brings the gold. And he actually sheds the perfect human blood because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. He pays for our sin. The payment for all the credit card charges in the past. How many charges had there been? David had a big charge. Right? Big charge. And all kind of people have big charges. And then, uh, but this payment of gold, his precious blood, was a payment for all the sins that had occurred in the past, all the sins that were occurring then when he was living, and even all the future sins of mankind. What a payment. So our sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for in advance. You may think, oh, I'm going to go sin some more. (laughs) Well, don't do that because... There's still earthly consequences. But, but this is true. And that's why Brother Lee told us, and I think it was the Hebrews training, he said, you just say, Lord, thank you. You paid for my sins. Good enough. Good enough. They've been paid for. I mean, there are consequences earthly-wise, but if you accept this payment and believe in it and appropriate it, your sins have been paid for past, 
present and future. We still need to confess because that's a matter of fellowship. God wants us to agree, but actually the sins are paid for. We just acknowledge it and enjoy it. Okay, then, of course, he resurrected, and um, Acts 2.24 says that his resurrection, he loosed the pangs of death. It was not possible that he'd be held by it. Every human being has had already di- who died, and everyone had already died, many people had died, no one escaped death, and no one escapes death today. And no animal escapes death, and no plant escapes death, and no anything escapes death except this one man went into death, and he was, it was impossible that he'd be held by it. He is resurrection life. He overcame death, and death is the greatest power in this universe except God himself. It is a, it is a great power. It just sweeps away all the negative things. Everything gets swept away by death. But he overcame death. And uh, he became, in his resurrection, a life-giving spirit. Now, this is the second part of his availability. Remember, incarnation was to become available. People could see him. They could hold him. They could touch him. They could listen to him. They could understand God, know God, talk to God. God was defined, declared, expressed. But there was still limitation because you had to be there in the Holy Land to enjoy him and still you could only be with God in the flesh. He wouldn't be able to get into you and be actually mingle with you and join to you. This is why you have John 14, 15, 16. And especially in 14 and 16. Jesus says in John 16, 7, I think, he said, it is good for you that I go away because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come to you. And he says, in that day, in chapter 14, I'm with you today, but in that day, uh, the second comfort is not just going to be with you, he's going to be in you. And don't worry, you know him because he's already with you. So he's saying, I am going to be the second comforter when I am in resurrection. And this is, again, ultimate availability because it's not just that i touch him and listen to him but i can be mingled with him Amen. he can be in me and i can be in him and i can be absolutely intimate with him and he never never leaves me this is the ultimate availability so this happened in resurrection and then he ascended and he was enthroned and uh of course, he became uh, l- both Lord in Christ and in uh, Acts 5.31, we didn't put that here, but he became a leader and a savior. He is the leader, he is the ruler, and in Revelation 1.5, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he in ascension is ruling over this world. He is orchestrating things for his people, for the salvation of his people. So that you came to know Christ. You may think, I'm too small. Why would he worry about me? Let me tell you, he loves you. He knows you before you were born. He orchestrated everything in the whole universe just for you. What? Just for me? Yes, just for you. And also just for you. Now how can that be? He's God. That's how that can be. 
Yes. You think about your background. You think about your past. You think about the family you were born into. Maybe you had a lot of problems. But anyway, one day God brought you right where he needed you to be till you met him. He saved you. He knew what family you needed to be brought, born in, what city, what state, what country. He's a leader and a savior. He's a ruler of the kings of the world. Even the world situation is so messy, you never know. But you think God is in control. Just with the nation of Israel, you know, when King Nebuchadnezzar came in there in around 600 B.C., they lost their nation. The Gentiles were in control for 2,000 years or more. 1948. Well, then you have the Holocaust. But the Holocaust is actually what probably resulted in Israel being formed. So you never know how God works. Then the nation of Israel is reformed in May 1948. And then the temple, ground for the temple, and the city of Jerusalem in 1967, June. I just graduated from high school. I remember it. Anyway, things happen. God is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We don't understand. Don't think you're that able to understand things. We are very small. You know, I, I, just, was <laughs> I just remembered something that is uh, Handel's Messiah, you know, the chorus is a, is a long opera or whatever, and uh, over two hours. And, but the most famous part is that chorus, you know, the, what they call a hallelujah chorus. About uh, the king of kings, or something like that, forever and ever. And, uh, you know, it's, wow, king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> and uh, so listen, I was in Westminster Abbey a few months ago. And so I was looking at the area where they coronate the British monarchs. Certain kind of area where that's where the coronation takes place. And I noticed above that area, there's, I think, some kind of mural, but there's also this verse that he is, that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. It's good. The British have that. And then this story, there's an interesting little story about this Handel's Messiah. So Handel was a German, and he wrote the Messiah, which is this long performance over two hours. He wrote it just in about a month when he was living in Britain, or living in London, I think. And uh, then it was performed there a few times, and one of the very early performances was in 1743, so just a few years before our revolution. Our revolution in 1776 to 1743, the king was named George II. Okay, the one we fought was George III. That was his son. We f but his, this is the father, George II. He was king. So Handel's Messiah goes on, you know, for two hours. And then they come to the Hallelujah Chorus. And I don't know exactly how this all worked, but, you know, when they started the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, about king of kings, and he rules forever and ever, the king, George II, stood up. <laughs> and all the people, of course, oh, <laughs> they all stood up with him, you know. <laughs> the king stands up, you stand up. And uh, he stood up for just two minutes. It's just lasted a couple of minutes, maybe three minutes. It's fairly short. He stood through the Hallelujah Chorus about King of Kings and all this. And then after the end of the performance, some people were asking the king, why did you stand? And he said, I am King of England. He is King of Kings. Amen. 
Pretty good. There is a tradition today, if you ever go to Handel's Messiah, there's a tradition today, when they come to the Hallelujah Chorus, everybody stands. Still, to this day, everybody stands. And that is from that king who stood. So he is a ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he descended, and he was poured out on all of us. He poured out. So it's so easy for people to get saved. They just pray, just call on the Lord. That's his ultimate availability. Just like the air is so available. Christ as the Spirit is Amen. so available. Amen. Okay, now, uh, a little bit more and then we'll stop. So this is the person and the work of Christ. And uh, so we uh, are Christians. And uh, we met Christ whenever we met Christ in our life. And uh, we need to see, which some Christians don't see, but it's very much in the Bible, that we need to pursue Christ. Even though, and once we do have him, I think a lot of Christians just say, well, I already have Christ. What do you mean pursue, pursue Christ? I don't have to pursue Christ. I already have Christ. Well, you have to read Philippians, because Philippians talks about pursuing Christ. And there's a book in the Old Testament, Song of Songs, which talks in typology about pursuing Christ. So even though we have Christ, and even though we know Christ, we need to know him more. Now, Solomon, the king, the richest man, the wisest man, uh, you know, he had his period of intense backsliding. And he became involved in so many things that are not good just wives and concubines and just the indulgence of the flesh, pursuing after all the things of life. So he backslid. He backslid. But apparently Solomon came back to the Lord. And it was after he came back to the Lord, he wrote Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. So these books are written with a background. They're written with his own background. And, and of course, uh, Ecclesiastes you know, is followed by Song of Songs. And Ecclesiastes can be summed up in two words. Vanity of vanities. And the Song of Solomon can be summed up in two words. Song of Songs. So human life without Christ and without pursuing Christ is vanity of vanities. And human life in pursuit of Christ is song of songs. Amen. And these two books are very rightly placed right next to each other. You know, when Peter, when, if you look at Peter's experience here in the verses here, uh, Luke 5, 8, it says, uh, Simon Peter uh, saw this, a miracle that Jesus did, and he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. If you study the verses in the New Testament, the Gospels, in Luke, in Matthew, in Mark, in John, you'll see Peter in his three years uh, move progressively in his knowledge of who this man was, Jesus. At first, you know, he said, Depart. Well, at first, his brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. 
Okay, now it's kind of confusing sometimes. You read a little bit in Luke, you read some in Matthew, you read some in John. You're not quite sure. Well, when did Peter meet Jesus anyway? It seems like he met him in John chapter 1. It seems like he met him in Matthew chapter 4. It seems like he met him in Luke chapter 5. Well, apparently these are different encounters that this man, Peter, is having with Jesus. The first one probably being in John chapter 1, and then early on, then Brother Lee, has, he kind of speculated that maybe after that, Peter left Jesus and didn't continue to follow him, and that the Lord came to him again in Matthew, in the land of darkness, and great light sprung up. And the Lord came to him again in Luke chapter 5. So there was more than one appearing. And you can identify probably with this. Uh, the Lord comes to you. You get saved. Maybe you forget about that. And then he comes back to you. And you meet him again. And then you forget about that and he comes back to you and he meets you again. He calls you more. This is actually very much related to our experience. And this is a part of coming to know Christ initially. So, um, of course, Peter, you know, is a real good example of us because Peter, you know, said, Lord, depart me, I'm a sinful man. And then, then the Lord appeared to him and the great light sprung up and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then Peter did follow the Lord and got a revelation. This is, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. So he continued to know him better, continued to know him more. At first, I don't know who exactly he thought he was. He was somebody special, but he didn't quite know. But he got a revelation. You're the, you're the Christ, the son of a living God. Peter had a big failure, a big failure. He denied the Lord. He thought that he was better than the other disciples. He was kind of the number one. He was a, you know, kind of an alpha male maybe or something like that. And he thought that these guys maybe were like, you know, wimps or something, but he was a little better. And he said, you know, they'll all deny you, but I'll never deny you. And the Lord said, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Or twice or something. You're going to deny me three times. And uh, Peter said, no, 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 it'll never be. And then uh, the Lord said, Satan is going to sift you. But I'm going to pray, and, you're, and when you're restored to your faith, you encourage the brothers. Okay, so Peter, the Lord is arrested. Peter cuts the slave's ear off, and then the Lord's brought into some kind of, you know, trial of some sort, and Peter's watching from afar, and then somebody walks up to him and says, Hey, uh, weren't you with him? And Peter says, Oh, no, I don't know this guy. And then after a while, somebody else says, you, your accent sounds a little Galilean to me. Peter says, no, what are you talking about? Get out of here. And the final one is a little girl. And if you go to Israel, they have a statue there of a, a crow, a, a rooster crowing, and a little girl and Peter and a Roman. It's a statue of the final denial. And uh, then a little girl comes up to him. And Peter, before a little girl, denies the Lord and curses. He curses. Peter had been following the Lord for three and a half years, or three years, and he's cursing his denials. And, of course, he looks, Jesus was in view, 
And he sees Jesus, and Jesus is looking at him. And Peter just breaks into tears, weeping. And uh, this was the sifting. You know, the Lord... Uh, Sifting is something you do with wheat. And you have a sieve, a sieve or something and you're shaking it and the wheat goes through and the grain of the crust of the kernel or husk, they get caught. So we are, all of us are in need of sifting from time to time. This is what I shared. The, the work of the Holy Spirit is number one, revelation. Number two, discipline. And the discipline of the Holy Spirit is for our good, but it's also a sifting. And uh, we go through experiences. And a lot of these experiences are experiences of failure. Failure. Sometimes it's discipline in other ways, but a lot of the times it can be failure of various sorts. And Peter had a giant failure. Not only did he deny the Lord once, twice, three times, the last time with cursing before a little girl. And surely he thought he was finished. And then after the Lord resurrected, he, you know, I think it was uh, Mary or somebody, he said, go tell his disciples, uh, the, maybe the angel said this, go tell his disciples and Peter. So what is happening, and we know more from John chapter 21, is the Lord appears to them and he has a conversation with Peter he is restoring him, and Peter actually is coming to know this Christ better. So our life is a life of pursuing to know Christ more, to know God. This is a pursuit of our life. Even the Jews would tell you that they pursue to know God. But they, you know, they're missing God, but this is our life as well. And, uh, you, of course, in John 21, you have... so. Paul picks up on this, and uh, we'll see it more in some other verses, but uh, Paul talks about to know him. Now, when Paul wrote Philippians, he had been a Christian for 25 years, approximately. 25 years. And he says to know him. I want to know him. You know, on the day that Paul was called, when he was on the road to Damascus, he said, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Paul thought he knew, Saul thought he knew Jesus. He thought he was a rebel. He thought he was an illegitimate child. He thought he was from a poor neighborhood. He thought he was a Galilean. He thought very lowly of this guy. He's a troublemaker. We've had other people like him. We've got to get rid of him. He didn't know him. Then on the road to Damascus, he even voted in favor of Stephen being killed. Paul was complicit in the murder of one or more, probably more because he was also going in and arresting people. This is why I believe Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. That wasn't just a humble remark. You know, I think he was always conscious of the fact that he had voted in favor of the death of Stephen and he had participated in the arrest and possibly the death after they were arrested of disciples. So he did feel he was a chief to sinners. He was the chief to sinners, in a sense. But anyway, uh, so he, on the road to Damascus, says, Who are you, Lord? And then he said, I'm Jesus, and you persecute. And then he said, What should I do? 
And the, and the Lord says, it'll be told you what to do. But in Philippians, 25 years later, Paul still says to know him. Saints, we need to have a desi- an aspiring heart to know. Don't stay settled that you know him in a narrow way. You have to, you have to desire to know him more. He's, he's very b- broad and, and vast. He's an incredible person. Uh, I think many of us are too satisfied with our level of knowledge. Okay, we're going to stop here and pick it up uh, in the next session uh, on B. We'll get into that and let you share a little bit, and then we'll have a break.